This afternoon's sermon that we are going to read and listen to was prepared by Dr. Wes Bradenhoff from Launceston, Tasmania, Australia. The text he has chosen is Matthew 19, verse 16, through Matthew 20, verse 16, which you will find on page 1135 of your Pew Bible. So the reading starting Matthew 19, verse 16, where the Word of God says, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to them, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to them, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go. Sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour, and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle, and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. 
And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. So far the reading. The text for today's sermon we find in the Canons of Dort, 118, which is on page 569 in the back of your book of praise. The Canons of Dort, chapter 1, article 18, the heading, not protest but adoration. To those who complain about this grace of undeserved election and the severity of righteous reprobation, we reply with this word of the Apostle. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Romans 9.20 And with this word of our Savior, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Matthew 20.15 We, however, with reverent adoration of these mysteries, exclaim with the Apostle, O oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, I remember seeing this bank commercial a few years ago. It was pretty memorable. A man in a suit sits across from two young girls. They're probably seven, eight years old. The man asks the first young girl, would you like a pony? Her eyes light up. She eagerly says, yeah. He reaches into his suit, pulls out a little toy pony and gives it to her. She's smiling. She's happy with her gift. Then the man in the suit turns to the second girl, asks her the same question. Would you like a pony? Of course, she says, yeah, her eyes are wide. She has a big smile on her face as she expects to receive a little toy as well. But then the man makes a clicking noise and calls over a real pony and says, here, this is for you. The second girl is very happy with her gift. The first girl looks on jealously and then says, you didn't say I could have a real one. The man in the suit answers, well, you didn't ask. The first girl just glares at the man in the suit, obviously fuming and stewing. The announcer comes on. Even children know what's wrong to hold out on somebody. Why, why don't banks? You can't help but sympathize with the first child. It's unfair that she got a toy pony when the other girl got a real pony. They were both asked if they wanted a pony. The second girl got the real thing. It's just not fair. Unfair, unfairness bothers us. It bothers us when we're children. It bothers us when we're adults. When we're treated unfairly, we have a hard time taking it. When we see others being treated unfairly, we often have a hard time seeing it. There's something in most human beings that bristles at the idea of unfairness. 
We want to see ourselves and others treated justly. To many people, the doctrine of election seems unfair. After all, shouldn't everyone be treated equally? What they really mean is that everyone should be saved, or at least have a chance to be saved. Behind this is the idea that people are deserving of these things. They deserve to be objects of God's grace, or maybe they deserve the opportunity to show themselves worthy of his grace in Jesus Christ. Therefore, as the canons of Dort say, people complain about the grace of undeserved election and the severity of righteous reprobation. People combine their ideas of fairness with their ideas of humans somehow deserving something from God. And that can stand in the way of accepting and believing this doctrine. Understanding the sovereignty of God and his relations to human beings is sometimes hard. Accepting that God sovereignly chooses some while passing others by, that can be difficult. There's grace and there's justice. We love the former, but struggle with the latter. Yet God's word teaches all of it. The canons of Dort point us to God's word and what it says. Most of chapter 1, article 18 is taken up with scripture, especially the words of Romans 11, 33 to 36. There Paul exclaims the sovereign God's glory with his so-called doxology. God owes nothing to no one. No one deserves a payment from God for services rendered. The canons also quote from Romans 9, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? The puny creature should not be arguing with the Creator and second-guessing his decisions. Then, Canons of Dort 1.18 also quotes from Matthew 20, verse 15, where Christ says in a parable, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? We're going to look at this parable in more detail this afternoon and what it teaches us about God's sovereign grace and our acceptance of it. Please have your Bible open at Matthew 20. We'll see that it not only speaks to us about God and how he sovereignly bestows grace, but also about our attitude towards that. This parable is designed to open our eyes to God's way of dealing with sinners so that we would accept it, believe it, and live accordingly. We're going to see how this parable teaches that by sovereign grace, the last will be first. In so doing, it also teaches us the proper attitude to God's sovereign grace. In this parable, we'll look at the hiring process, the hour of reckoning wages, and the hard lesson to be learned. What instigated this parable was a conversation our Lord Jesus had with his disciples about entering the kingdom of God. There was that rich young man who thought he'd mastered the law. Christ exposed his failure at a crucial point, and then the young man went away sad. Our Lord used this as an opportunity to teach his disciples about the difficulty in entering the kingdom as someone with great earthly riches. It's difficult, he said, but it's possible with God. But then the thoughts of the disciples went to the great sacrifices they had made to be the first ones to follow Jesus. What would they get? Christ assured them that they would indeed receive much from him in the age to come, including eternal life. However, chapter 19 ends by saying that many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Christ told this parable to explain that surprising statement. 
He was speaking to his disciples at this point. He wasn't speaking to a broad audience. There's no evidence in the context that he was speaking for the ears of the Pharisees or other religious leaders. This parable was intended for his disciples so that they would understand something crucial about the nature of the kingdom of heaven. When Christ speaks about the kingdom of heaven, he's referring to God's reign. It's a state of affairs. It's not so much a place, though it does cover the entire world. God rules over the world and over all people. This parable is about how God carries out his reign over all creation and how the king relates to his subjects. Jesus says that God's rule can be compared to a landowner and how he manages his property and affairs. This landowner has a large vineyard and he needs people to work in it. At the very beginning of the day, around sunrise, he goes out and hires a bunch of temporary workers. Together they reach an agreement that they'll work the full day and then receive a denarius. The exact value of a denarius in today's terms is not certain. But we do know that in those days, a denarius was a fair wage for a day's labor. With that agreement in place, the workers head over to the vineyard and begin working for the landowner. But the landowner needs more help in his vineyard. It's the third hour, about nine in the morning. He goes to where you'll likely find people waiting to be hired for casual labor, the marketplace. The landowner spies a group of men standing around, doing nothing, and he hires them. He sends them to work in his vineyard and assures them they'll receive a fair wage. He doesn't reach an agreement with them for denarius, but just on his word that they'll get a fair wage. They do go into the vineyard and start working. The same thing takes place on the sixth hour, 12 noon, and also on the ninth hour, 3 p.m. Finally, it's the eleventh hour, five o'clock in the afternoon. It's not quitting time yet, but it's getting close. Quitting time was 6 p.m. There's one hour left in the day. The landowner goes to the marketplace one last time and finds yet another group of men standing around doing nothing. No one hired them. The landowner takes these men too and sends them out into the vineyard. He sends them to work for just one hour. It's clear in this parable that the landowner is God. God chooses and calls people as workers in his kingdom. He chooses and calls whomever he pleases and whenever he pleases. In the hiring process, if we can call it that, God is sovereign. It was on the landowner's initiative that these men came to work in his vineyard. Similarly, it's God's gracious initiative that anyone comes to be a worker in his kingdom. It is a sovereign God's initiative when anyone comes to faith in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit submits to the kingship of God and wants to live for him and work for his glory. Loved ones, we don't choose God. He unconditionally chooses us. It's important that we see that so that we remain humble. It's important that we see that again so that we always give all the praise and glory to God for our place in his kingdom. Eventually, evening comes in the parable. It's the hour for reckoning wages for giving the workers their pay. The boss gives specific instructions to his foreman about how to do this. The workers will come and they'll each get their wages. However, the boss wants the foreman to start with the ones who were hired last and then finish with those who were hired first. There's a reason behind this method. There's a lesson that will be taught to those listening. 
The men hired at five are the first ones to get paid. Each of them receives a denarius. In other words, each of them receives a full day's wage. This is extravagantly generous on the part of the landowner. This boss doesn't owe them a full day's wage because they didn't work for it. But he graciously gives it to them. While the parable doesn't explicitly say it, we can expect the same happened with all the others hired throughout the day. They all received the denarius. But it's the ones hired last who are the focus here. There is a deliberate contrast being set up here by Jesus between the last and the first. The first ones had been hired about sunrise. They've been watching how everybody's getting paid, making sure that it's all fair. Seeing the five o'clock crowd getting a denarius, they thought they'd for sure get more. After all, wouldn't that only be fair? You work more, you get more. You work one hour, you get one denarius. You work 12 hours, you should get 12 denarii. 12 times as much pay for 12 times the labor. Makes perfect sense. That would be fair and just in human thinking. This is where Jesus takes his listeners by surprise. All the first workers also received a denarius. They received exactly the same as the ones who had been hired only one hour ago. They had been rubbing their hands together, looking forward to a big payday, and now they only got what everyone else had gotten. The reaction is so typical of our fallen human nature. They begin to grumble against the landowner. In the, in the original Greek, Christ uses some vivid language to describe this. He uses onomatopoeia here. Onomatopoeia is when the sound of a word matches its meaning. So for instance, in English, we say, bees buzz. Buzz is a good example of onomatopoeia. The word here in Greek does the same thing. It sounds like the grumbling and complaining of someone upset. Arr. And they're doing this against the landowner, against the boss. But they don't take it silently and walk away. They verbalize their beef with the boss. They say, the ones you hired last only worked one hour. We were hired first. We spent the whole day working in your vineyard while these last fellows were relaxing in the shade. We were slaving in the scorching heat. Now you're giving us the same as them? How is that fair? Notice how these first workers have positioned themselves. They've positioned themselves against the landowner. They are grumbling against him, despite the fact that he graciously gave them a job in his vineyard. He gave them a place, promised to give them a fair wage. Not only do they set themselves against him, they set themselves over him. They are going to be the judges of whether the landowner is doing right or wrong. Now keep in mind that the landowner represents God. We have people positioning themselves against and over God. We have people judging God and what he does. In other words, what we have here is pride. The creature tries to lift itself up over the creator. The pottery tries to talk back to the potter. Loved ones, this is always a bad idea. Proudly judging God and his ways revealed to us in scripture that's typically a recipe for disaster. It's something that God doesn't bless. Rather, it offends him deeply when his creatures position themselves like this. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Humility is supposed to be the way of those who recognize the reign of God, who submit to him, who live out of faith in Jesus Christ. 
Humility was the way of our Savior as he lived on earth. He walked in humble obedience to God. He never positioned himself against or over his Father. Christ never complained or grumbled against heaven. The gospel promises us that all who trust in Christ receive this humble obedience of his. It's credited to our accounts as if we had done it. As believers, we're grafted into this Savior, and through his Holy Spirit, his obedience also more and more comes to expression in our lives. We hear his word and want to follow it. We see here how out of place it is for Christians to be grumbling against God and judging his ways. That includes what God does in election and reprobation. We have zero business judging God and his ways. As Christians, we want to put that to death in our lives and learn patient and humble submission to our God. Part of that involves learning the hard lessons at the end of the parable. The landowner has heard the complaining and now he responds to one of the workers, probably the head complainer. He addresses him, calls him friend. Don't be misled by that word friend. His word isn't the word Jesus used in John 15 when he says to his disciples, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Instead, it's the same word used by Christ in the parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22. It's the word that the king used when he sees the man without wedding clothes. He says, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And then he has him tossed out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the word used here. It doesn't have a lot of friendship invested in it. It's more of a nicety. It means even less than a friend on Facebook. So we can't read anything into that word. The significance is in what follows. What follows is first of all an assertion. I'm not being unfair to you. There is no injustice on the part of the landowner. When he asked the question to drive the point home, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? This is a rhetorical question, one where the answer is obvious. Of course that was agreed upon at the beginning. If that was the agreement, and that's what was given, then there's no injustice. The complainers should be happy with what they get and go on their way. The landowner could leave it at that, but he says more. He says it was his will to give the last workers the same as the first. That's what he wanted to do, so that's what he did. It was his sovereign good pleasure. Then he asks another rhetorical question, the one we find in Canons of Dort. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The answer again is obvious. Of course the landowner can do as he pleases. These workers have no right to dictate to him what he should do. They're not the landowner. Nobody has appointed them as judges over him. So long as they have received what was agreed upon, they have no right to complain. With this last question, the landowner strikes at the hearts of the complainers. He asks, or do you begrudge my generosity? Obviously they do. They can't handle the generous way that the landowner has treated those hired at five o'clock. They don't appreciate his gracious gift. They're angry because he has lavished those latecomers with something they haven't earned. They see the others and the way the boss relates to them and it just burns them right up. It's not fair that those five o'clock workers should get the same as the early risers. They begrudge the landowner his generosity and grace. Then Christ concludes with verse 16. 
So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The last workers were treated the way they were because of grace, because the landowner had a generous heart. They were elevated to a high position because of grace, last to first. But when the first workers saw the way the latecomers were elevated, sinful pride rose up in their hearts, and they dared to complain against the landowner and judge him and his generosity. This brought them a rebuke from the landowner. Those who had been first were knocked down with this rebuke, put to the end of the line, so to speak, first to last. The whole point of the parable is that grace is shocking. Grace is unexpected. For sinful human beings, God's grace can be difficult to swallow because it's so unfair. By definition, grace is when sinful people receive the opposite of what they deserve. In the beginning of the parable, no one deserves to be hired by the landowner. Even the first workers were in the vineyard by grace. They were going to receive a reward for their labor by grace, but some received more grace than others. Some worked less, making the reward seem disproportionate and unfair. Yet that's the essence of grace. God's grace is not about proportion. God's grace is never about giving a one-to-one payment for services rendered. Grace is not about proportion. The kingdom of heaven turns all human reasoning about these sort of things upside down. The parable also makes us think about how we might begrudge grace shown to others. When it comes to ourselves, grace is normally welcomed. We want God to treat us graciously, and we're thankful that in Jesus Christ he has. We're relieved to hear the gospel message that he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. I'm glad to know that grace is there for me in Christ. Grace to cover all my sins, past, present, and future. I deserve nothing but God's condemnation. But in Christ, he has given me a place in his family. He calls me his son and treats me like one, though I know that often I act like a traitor and a rebel. I welcome this grace for me, and you would too for yourself. Grace is beautiful, wonderful, when it gets applied personally to ourselves. But when it comes to others, we may not quite be as big-hearted and enthusiastic about grace, especially when we've been living with grace for a long time, just like the workers who spent the whole day in the vineyard. We can easily forget the grace we've been shown by God. When we hear about others being on the receiving end of his grace, we can sometimes be a bit ornery and grumbly. We are people who want justice and fairness, When people are bad sinners, and especially if we don't have a relationship with them, there's something in us that says that these people should get what's coming, both in this life and in life to come. No grace. This parable confronts such begrudging attitudes and challenges. But brothers and sisters, grace also touches our lives in other ways. This parable is meant to impress us with the grace of our God. We're to be impressed that we have a good, and gracious Father in heaven. He has a big heart. He lavishes gifts on the undeserving. We were created in his image. Yes, the fall vandalized that image. But with the Holy Spirit, that image is being renewed. We were created to reflect our Father in heaven and his big heart. We have been redeemed by Christ and are being renovated by the Holy Spirit so that people would see our God in us. Let's learn from this parable 
how we are to be gracious and generous people, whether as employers or as husbands, as wives, parents, church members, or whatever calling we have. God's word calls us here to be people who are unexpectedly generous and kind to others. God's grace is shocking, and our lives are to reflect that shocking grace in the way we deal with others. How can we do that in concrete ways? Well, let's think about this for a moment. Why is it that we often have a hard time seeing somebody else receiving something good? Something that we don't get or we can't have. Why is it when someone says something kind and upbuilding about another person, then we sometimes feel compelled to respond with something like, well, let me tell you something you may not know about that person. And then we proceed to tear them down as if it's something in our duty to break down the reputation of that other person. Why do we do that? Isn't it exactly because of the human tendency that this parable exposes? Isn't it exactly because we want grace for ourselves, but we struggle with others receiving it? Brothers and sisters, this emerges from the ugly remnants of our sinful nature. Those who are in Christ by faith have to see that it's out of place in their lives and they have to put it to death. What these workers did in the parable was ugly and wrong. It's equally ugly and wrong when Christians fail to rejoice in grace extended to others and when they themselves fail to extend that same kind of grace they've been shown. On the other hand, <clears throat> when we reflect our God and Savior with a kind and gracious heart, hearts that reveal themselves with generous words and actions, that's precious and beautiful in the sight of God. That pleases Him. And because of that gospel, isn't that what we want to do? Because of Christ, we want to be beautiful inside and out for God. Now, there are more concrete ways of applying this parable that could be mentioned, but I'm going to leave it with you. It's something worth thinking about on your own. Loved ones, this parable forces us to think carefully about how God deals with sinners. We are sinners, and sometimes our remaining sin can make us judgmental about God, how God deals with other sinners, and how we should deal with other sinners. We talk about fairness and justice, but this parable confronts us with the fact that our demands or expectations can be sinful. We have so far to go in understanding the grace of God that's been lavished on us. We have so far to go in understanding that grace is available for all sinners. We have so far to go in reflecting the grace we've been shown. As we realize this, we see more and more our need to ask for more grace. We need God to graciously work in our hearts with his spirit so that we would live humbly before him, before the people he's placed in our lives. May he generously show this sovereign grace to each one of us. Amen.